Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country get together and talk about politics, current events, and other fun stuff. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kinnig. We're going to have to change that to our monthly meeting almost at yeah, this it's point. It's been almost two months since yeah. we last uh, met. Yeah. We say it all the time. The real life is the enemy of amateur podcasting <laughs> at this point. Well, and, uh, you know, plenty of life circumstances kind of entered into that. I started a new job. Yeah. I actually caught COVID as well, so that was interesting. <laughs> is, is that your second round of COVID? Uh, no, this was first time for So me. for all of your, because you, you, were, you were a guinea pig. You were in the trials. I was, yeah. For all of that, you skated through never getting COVID. First two years, no COVID. And Ninth so inning, here you go. I'm assuming I had one of these variants, the B1, yeah. whatever variant, which is escapes immunity for the most part. Um, and I did not have severe symptoms. I had like worst migraine in my life starting off. And then that translated into low fever for about six, eight hours and then head and nasal congestion. Yeah. But it, it lasted a while and the fatigue lasted for a while. So I had 10 days total where I was feeling under the weather. Uh, but the worst part of it was losing my taste and smell for almost seven days. So you had a full case of COVID. I did. And that is what drove me crazy psychologically because my mind immediately <laughs> went to, am I ever going to get my taste and smell back? Yeah. I have no appetite now because I can't taste even, anything. Even knowing, having two years of experience with this and knowing yeah. what those symptoms were, but it's still but out never, there. That you, is that is sh- one of the strangest symptoms I could imagine, too. yeah. And I don't know if you've had it. Like I've heard about people having it. So in my head, I thought what it would be like. But you still can't really imagine it till you deal with it yourself in terms it, of what it's like. It's the strangest sensation ever. It's amazing that we're so far into this and we have so much experience with that. You, we've heard about this so many times, losing your taste and smell. And it's still that disconcerting when it happens to you. And when it hit me, it hit me like that. I was yeah. actually biting into a sandwich, <laughs> a sub sandwich that had like three types of meat on it, lettuce, cheese, onion, all these different uh, flavors, different yeah. toppings. And I realized that all of a sudden, without any warning, I could have tasted any of it. Yeah. Like the texture was there, so I could feel the texture, but nothing had taste. And I ended up spitting my sandwich out because I'm like, this doesn't, there's no taste. Well, for pharmaceutical companies, the next billion dollar idea, the next weight loss idea is an injection that yeah. you just lose your sense of taste for 30 days. Hey, I lost like six, seven because pounds. So if, if <laughs> was, the taste thing, is gone yeah you know? and i mean the good thing is unlike when you really try to limit your food intake and you have that kind of feeling where you're just hungry you yeah. know all the time you don't feel that with this so you can go the thing was i would go all day without eating and not feel hungry at all like i would have to remind myself to eat something and i did feel weak like it didn't cause me to to feel bad but i just had no appetite at all and no desire to eat. Yeah. Uh, so it was just completely removed. So that was, that was interesting, but I could go about and function without any issue or without being distracted by feeling hungry. Yeah. That would be, that'd be a pretty powerful dietary aid there. That would be, yeah. Just one shot. They maybe. need to just like isolate the specific compound in the virus that contributes to that. That would be, yeah. That'd be go. pretty good. Yeah. So I think we, we talked about the one thing we want to dive into kind of deeply, and we'll, we'll kind of get some spinoff topics from this. It's impossible to cover how the world's changed since May 7th to, uh, to And over today. 60 days, yeah. Because we came up with three or four big things that have actually led to to legislation, actual on there's a lot actually on the ground that's changed in the past two months in, in the United States. I think the biggest one that we wanted to talk through tonight 
just getting our thoughts on Roe a little bit. And, and Roe is a topic that we have talked about multiple times on the podcast. You, right. can't, you can't avoid talking about it. I'm well on record as saying I didn't think they would ever overturn Roe. Just for the sheer political fallout, I thought it was something that the court would take a much more of a, a political lens to Roe and to make sure that the John Roberts philosophy of the court, that it needs to stay in tune with public opinion, I thought that was more codified into the court and that that would be kind of the legs that held Roe up. I think since Roe got overturned, I think all of us have listened to enough podcasts and news to know legally Roe was a, a very dubious decision from a legal perspective. There, there's many that agree with uh, abortion rights but do not agree with the foundation of Roe um, and that it was a very flimsy foundation yeah. that was susceptible to challenge, and it has been ever since. That be <laughs> being said— uh, the draft opinion on this case was leaked, I think, back yeah. in early May, and I don't even remember um, if we had done our last podcast. I think so. Maybe we did. Maybe we talked about it. But the interesting thing was, even with that happening, I think there was a reluctance to accept that that was going to be the reality. Yeah. I think many people kind of you know, fooled themselves, uh, kind of lulled themselves in this false sense of security that, well, there's going to be you know, changes. Uh, Roberts is going to be able to cultivate a coalition that c keeps the foundation of Roe intact while going along with the Mississippi law. But as we saw transpire, virtually everything in the draft opinion is what came down yeah. in the actual opinion. Almost with, word for word. Word for word, yeah. Yeah. I think what's, what's interesting here is, so you've got the three, the three liberal judges, Sotomayor, Bayer, and Kagan. They, of course, vehemently dissented with this. Then you had the five traditional conservative judges uh, this is the three Trump had plus Alito and Clarence Thomas. They were the voting block that voted for it. And then Chief Justice Roberts, he kind of – he didn't join the majority, but he voted for the decision. Yeah. So that was his way of saying, hey, I, I agree with what they're doing. I just – I, I agree with, with the outcome. I would have done it a little bit differently, I think is what Roberts was saying. Well, and he attempted to do, and it's interesting, you know, this is where this court deviates from past courts, is typically chief justices have held a lot of sway. They've been able to cultivate uh, coalitions behind themselves and, and lead in decision-making. And Roberts tried to do that here. He's tried to do that in other cases, and he's been rebuffed and rebuked. And in some of these cases, you've had justices like Thomas and Alito that have been pretty scathing in their dissents against Roberts and almost on a personal level. So it's really striking to see there's what's happening publicly with the court. But if you read between the lines in terms of some of the arguments, something that hasn't been done, they said, for decades is you've actually had, for example, like Alito actually come back and respond or um, refute uh, dissenting justices' opinion mm -hmm. um, after it's been issued. And so there's been this kind of tick for tat tit-for-tat yeah. kind of mentality, which you typically don't see on the court. So it is a very different court. Roberts has no control over it. I mean, he's chief justice, basically, in name only at this point. And the question is where this court goes from here, because the, the problem, though, with undoing Roe and the way that they did it, it opens them up to undo, undo a lot of other decisions. And even sure. though they said that, you know, they're considering Roe in its own uh, place completely uh, unattached or detached from those other decisions. You have like Oberfell, yeah. uh, gay marriage. You have Griswold, which is birth and control. Did, those all inhabit the same right to yeah, privacy. But did realm. you hear Alito's logic to why Stare Decisis didn't apply to Roe? 
I did. It doesn't affect a living population. Right. Which I thought that was a very narrow interpretation of that. It is a very narrow interpretation. So there isn't any indication yet that any of the justices besides Thomas, Thomas seems like the only one who's willing to take it to those other other cases, which is interesting. I think the, the things that really struck me about this decision... You know, number one, this idea that precedent doesn't apply because there is not a, an established population that would be affected by this decision. I thought that was a, a curious way to, to, to look at precedent and what happens when you unwind a precedent. I get that when it applies to, let's say, gay marriage. If we were suddenly to say gay marriage is now illegal in the United States, you would have a massive impact on millions of families across the United States. Yeah. Marriages will have to be, be uncoupled. Children would be pulled out of homes. You simply cannot do it. Millions of people have made decisions on the fact that gay marriage is legal in the United States. That, the, the, the logic being that, that that rule of precedent, that level of precedent doesn't apply to Roe because there's no living a population that it applies. I don't see how you can take the, the, the women who want an abortion or have an abortion. That is a population that this precedent applies to. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't understand the logic from that. And I thought I that was very thin logic, yeah. of how they were able to withhold, hold up kind of how they were able to get around 50 years of precedence with, with the law. Well, and, and that's the essential question here, is that it, it's very difficult to overturn 50 years of precedent with this case. And, and particularly, we have to remember that many of the justices, you know, especially the last three, all answered questions during their confirmation hearings, saying that they yeah. uh, believed in precedent, that they understood the value of it, that, you know, they did it seek to overturn it. Um, and again, you know, I understand that those hearings are that those justices are heavily lawyered up. There's a lot of sure. behind the scenes, you know, on how you answer this question and exactly what you say as well as what you don't say. But still, I think it's also a shock for many who um, saw that um, and then, you know, see them just easily throw well, out 50 years. Of there's no reason to have any more televised Supreme Court. Clearly not, yeah. There's just, it's just a show. You're not going to learn. Between Kavanaugh and, and now now this, there's just no reason to do it. You're not going to gain any, any information. They're not going to tell you anything about how they're going to vote. And to your point, they're, they're so lawyered up and they're so on rails, you're not going to learn anything about what they're, how they're going to react on the court when certain decisions no. come by. Yeah, and, and and again, I mean, I, and I, they can easily mislead. They can, you know, make you think that they're going to vote one way or support one type of precedent. So at this point, is the is the court just? It's just political power at this point. It's well, whoever it has is. it. Well, and the problem too is, I mean, the court was one of the last institutions in America that still maintained some sort of legitimacy in terms of you know, in the eyes of Americans, especially if you look at polling, and that's just crumbled now. And I mean, this court is bleeding, um, you know, confidence. And so seeing, being seen as completely political for an institution that has always maintained this sense of neutrality, mm-hmm. that they were above and beyond politics, like that's detrimental. And there's some legal analysts that have basically said that they're never going to regain that back completely at this point. Well, there's, I don't think there's any way you can argue that the, that the Supreme Court was not politicized around Roe v. Wade. Yeah. The Republican Party did not put together a 50-state strategy of boots on the ground of how they were going to change the hearts and minds of Americans on abortion, who by polling, if you ask the question the right way, which is should a woman have a right to abortion, would 60, 65% say, say yes. Agree, yeah. As you make 
the question more complicated, you start getting a more variety of answers. And the longer it goes in the pregnancy, the more people become uncomfortable with having an abortion. Right. And they favor regulations of some type. And I think that's fairly common and and understood. That is the majority, But the Republicans didn't take a strategy of, hey, we're going to go out and convince those folks that these are the regulations that we need. And this is the right way. Uh, that we should think about abortion and pro-life in the United States. It wasn't a let's start a campaign to change the hearts and minds of Americans about the direction we want to go to. It was let's put together this kind of scheme headed by Mitch McConnell to pull all of these different political levers so we can get what we want by politicizing the court. Is that fair to say or is that too too general? No, I, I think that's fair. And, and and let's be honest. I mean, Republicans made abortion a litmus test for all Absolutely. of their judicial nominees. Yep. I mean, that is how they chose. If, if There was no chance of any judicial nominee who was not 100% uh, pro-life, anti-abortion being nominated for federal court yep. or for Supreme Court. That wasn't going to happen because Republicans, well, I should say conservatives, see this as an issue where they've been burned on in the past. You look at Justice Souter, you look at Sandra Day O'Connor, you look at Anthony Kennedy. We've had Republican justices that have been nominated, but more in the moderate stripe, yeah. um, who have disappointed conservatives on abortion. So in the last 10 years, especially, there's been this never again mantra that we're not going to take that risk. I mean, you can go all the way back to um, Harriet Myers, who Alito ended up filling that seat for George W. Bush. Uh, there were uh, senators who didn't like Harriet Myers because they thought she was insufficiently um, uh, anti-abortion yeah. because she had had writings in, in the past where she had basically expressed that she was pro-choice. Yeah. And so that is one of the ultimate things that tanked her nomination in addition to a few other factors. But there's, there's just no way. Yeah, the Republicans ran a political long game over the course of For 50 years. years. Yeah. Multiple presidencies. And I always Mitch go McConnell back. held it together in the Senate, and it paid off. So I always go back to this. So there was a two-year stretch. We all know when this was, back in 2009, where Democrats held the White House, um, the House of Representatives, and they had a 60-vote majority in the Senate. They expended political capital on yep. health care, um, and initially on a cap and trade, which fizzled out pretty quickly. So yeah. really all they got out of that was health care. What I do not understand is why there was not any type of foresight and strategy to go after some of these other issues, gun control, gun reform. Uh, they could have codified uh, Roe v. Wade at that point. I mean, they had why 60 votes didn't in the Senate. didn't they just slip it into Obamacare? Right. Why wasn't there just a paragraph in that three thirty thousand page bill that said at a federal level a woman has a right to an abortion? That's it. Don't mess with the you know what is viable or not, but just codify it there. To your point, there's multiple ways they could have done it. They didn't because I don't think they ever thought they would have to use any of their political. A good example: the assault weapons ban, right, that expired in 2003, which uh, Bill Clinton signed in law in 1994. How come they didn't even try to pass that again? I mean, when they had all why, three why do we let the I mean, tax credits for families elapse without yeah. addressing it? Just more of the same. I it just I always go back to that because it's like that was a squandered opportunity. And again, I'm speculating, but I think the mindset was I think it was hubris. It was this idea of saying we have this majority. This is going to be a new permanent realignment because um, I saw the articles about the time where yeah. Democrats were gloating and saying there's no chance Republicans will ever control pr- branch of government again because this is the way you know, demographics, everything moving forward. So they just assumed that they had all this time that they didn't have. And that all changed in two years. But they did have that 
two-year span where if they had been aggressive, they would have been able to pass a lot because with a 60-vote majority, I mean, that, you know, there was no barrier at that point. Also, too, the, the, the the Democrats have to take responsibility in multiple instances. This is one of them. Hey, under Obama, we had the chance to do it. We didn't. Yeah. Also, too, RBG could have retired. That we didn't a, have to give up that seat. A, that's a big one. I mean, you know? the fact that she did not uh, retire when Obama was president, I mean, that could have that's made the difference. just hubris on her part. So many, yeah. Yeah, we, we lost this case because she wouldn't retire, because she was 86 and still on the job. And, and I, th- I, I go back because, I mean, there's some things over the past several years that are just so— I mean, I have to remind myself that they actually happen because it would be something out of like a, you know, <laughs> fictional novel or dystopian novel. But the fact that RBG passed away in the final weeks of the 2020 mm-hmm. campaign, mm-hmm. I mean, oh, that yeah. close to a president and, Biden. And Mitch McConnell rammed it through. Yes. Yeah. So we have to remind ourselves. Yes. And, and again, uh, you know, and she was basically, and I'm not doing this to be um, insensitive, but she was basically on life support for the past couple of years, right? I mean, she had had major uh, cancer scares, operations. Yeah. She was in and out um, uh, constantly because of her health issues. Like, so, and so we were everybody was constantly on edge knowing that this was something that could happen yeah. anytime she could pass away it's part of it's part of something that's plaguing democrats right now we just refuse to accept reality the reality is that inflation especially around gas and food is the only thing most americans are talking about these days and the reality is until it's under 100 bucks to fill up your your tank that's the only thing politically that most people are going to care about. So do you think Roe is going to be able to break through, though? Like, where does Roe no. Ro factor into all of this? I, I think Roe I think Ro on the margins may make a difference. So the um, like defund police in 2020 kept the, the, the Democrats from fully winning as many House and Senate seats as we could. I think Roe will tamp down the overall... Uh, turnout for some Republicans, and I think it will make a difference on the margins. Are we not going to lose the House by 30 seats? No, that's still going to happen. Are we probably, do we have a better chance of holding the Senate? Yes, but that doesn't have anything to do with Roe. That has to do with Trump threw three turds on the table again for candidates that have a high probability of losing. Well, yes, I think it's that combined with Roe, though, being at the forefront. I think Roe will help energized Democratic base voters that were not energized before. Because if you look at, you know, likelihood of turning out, like there was an enthusiasm gap. Republicans were leading that by 20 points. All the recent polling shows that that has now been, uh, that's gone. I mean, Democrats have very high enthusiasm and are ready to vote now. I I only, I only poo poo on it because that would, that would mean the Democrats would have to come up with a logical, consistent, attractive message that they could consistently relay across candidates to the American public about where we stand, what we want Which to do, never been and what our plan is. There's a better chance of a monkey flying out of my ass right now than that happening because the leadership of that would have to come from President Biden. And President Biden is incapable of providing that type of leadership at this point in time in his career. 
Uh, agreed. I do think so. There, there's a new combination of factors. There's the uh, just awful candidates that Republicans are putting up, the Trump endorsed candidates, which reminds me, I think, was it 2014 where we were in the same cycle where you had Todd Aiken, yeah. Missouri, you had yeah. Christine O'Donnell in Delaware, <laughs> I'm you not had Rich Brandon. Yeah, I'm not which. Uh, yeah, and uh, you had the the guy in Indiana who I'm blanking out who lost against Evan. Yeah, uh, I remember him. He was super kooky. So that one cycle, you had all of Damn. these kooky candidates. Like that is what prevented Republicans from gaining the Senate. And I feel like there's a lot of similarities with 2014 and this yeah. year in terms of the candidates that are being nominated. And then I will say, out of all those states where with those marquee races, one where I think Roe v. Wade could be the tipping point and make a difference, but you already have a bad candidate anyway, is Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, because that is a state based on the propensity of women who vote, suburban, moderate, pro-choice women that are very strong in the Philly suburbs and the um, collar counties. I think that can make all the difference there. And what's interesting to me is not only is Dr. Oz a completely horrible candidate who doesn't even live in Pennsylvania, <laughs> who actually lives in New Jersey, like he ceased campaigning after he got the nomination. Like he's been, he hasn't been on the airwaves. He hasn't been spending any money. Like, Have you seen some of those commercials Federer is running? Yeah. Showing like his house and stuff. He's like, he didn't even live here. <laughs> it's like he has at it's least $107 million. And do you think he gives a shit about middle Pennsylvania? He's like, yeah. absolutely Absolutely not. But it's like, and maybe he's just, you know, um, waiting until later in the fall. But it's it's interesting that he took a break. I mean, he's not even like actively campaigning, which is bizarre. It's just, it's. Brandon, think if in this political moment, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama as president could step in front of the American people and say, I need to tell you guys a story about the Republican Party. And it starts with Donald Trump in January 6th and it ends at the midterms 2022. And it's a story about why you cannot put them back in power. And somebody could clearly articulate, this is the issue with our opponents. I'm not saying we don't have problems of our own, right. but these are the things that there's a, there's a fundamental rot to the Republican Party that was caused by Donald Trump that they have not addressed. Do you really feel comfortable putting them in power and then showing pictures of, Walker and Vance and Oz and that other buffoon from Pennsylvania who's running for governor and say, these are the people that, the, that represent the Republican Party. Just think about it. Yeah. The, the most effective ad I saw in Georgia was, I don't I even think it was his opponent. I don't think it was Warnock, but some pack or something. Just, just put Walker and put all the crazy shit. He said, just, just think about it before you do it. Just, just give it a thought. Just, just <laughs> think, is this really what you want to do? I think that's brilliant. Yeah, there, just very subtle. There's a kill shot to be had on the Republicans right now. We just are completely incapable of pulling it off. Uh, well, and in the <laughs> Walker case, I mean, you know, take that that quote. I, and again, I know it was— Which um, one? I mean, there's a thousand kooky things he has said. Well, yeah. I mean, so he uh, completely lied about his um, illegitimate children that he has, right? <laughs> But his campaign staff, and even though it was off the record, you can still cite it, that his campaign staff basically referred to him as a pathological liar. Sure. So it's like this guy's own campaign staff says he is a pathological liar. Is this somebody you really want as your next well, senator? With Herschel Someone Walker, who plays Russian roulette? Like <laughs> At Herschel Walker, at some point, we just have to realize that's a person who has a lot of mental health problems. Yes. And at some point, we're just mocking and laughing somebody's mental illness. And no Republican has enough decency just to go get him. They're just going to let him do it because there's a chance to seize more power. And if that's what you can do in today's game, that's what we're going to do. 
Well, and, and again, I, and I, I said this in the beginning, and I think we talked about this early on. I think you were less bullish on Warnock than I was, but I felt like the narrative would change and the polling would change as people got to know just how batshit crazy yeah. Walker was, and that started to happen. I mean, recent polling has Warnock in the lead by 10 yeah. points. That has turned around from where Walker was leading initially after, you know, getting front runner status well, in the nomination. Because I was higher on Herschel Walker because I, I could get Herschel Walker to the Senate. It's pretty easy. You, you say nothing politically. Yeah. All worth saying is University of Georgia football dog stories. Oh, That's yeah. it. Boom. Anybody asks you a question, you just shout, go dogs. That's all you have to do. You are not a politician. Look at Tommy Tuberville. <laughs> he is our model. You don't, Walker's going to do no debates because he simply can't. Right. That's not his candidacy. The, the fact, I guess I underestimated that. He would have to answer some basic questions, or he would have to present some articulate ideas. I thought they could get around that in Georgia, but I, 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 I still think he has a puncher's chance. But it just shows you, for, for the Republican Party, they can't say this isn't about just the raw acquisition of no. power if you've got those three that you're allowing to go under your banner. I, I agree. I do, that's why I am feeling much more confident the Democrats are going to hold the Senate. But again, I think the Senate is very different than the House. I mean, in yeah. terms of the makeup and the quality of the candidates and how they run, Senate candidates are more easily to differentiate themselves from the incumbent who's in office as well. There's, It's a different environment when you're talking about the Senate. And you have some of these races, like I would have said, um, as you know, as recently as a month ago, that JD Vance had you know the upper edge in Ohio. But Tim Ryan has actually raised a lot of money. Yeah. He's the best candidate the Democrats could possibly put up for Ohio. He's blue collar, working class background, yeah. fits the profile of that state well. So I think he has a shot there. But I also think Democrats need to um, realize, especially when you're talking about like money and donating, like it's easy to focus on federal, especially Senate and House. But I think what's key, especially for those that care about democracy, is gubernatorial races and secretary Mm -hmm. of state races. Because we know that the governors and the secretary of states, they are the ones who certify elections in their states that sign off. And there is a coordinated effort in place to get um, rabid MAGA people elected Mm -hmm. as secretaries of state who buy into the big lie, who have already said that if they were in power, they would have not certified the results. Arizona, you have Kerry Lake, who's of that mindset. This is all part of that commercial. If If this person could just say, okay, guys. Think about 2024 and who could potentially be in power and just start showing Oz in Vance behind him. Do you want the Republican – if a Republican wins, this would be a dig at Trump without saying it, but do you want – do you want to run the chance of putting Trump back in office with three more hand-picked senators? Yeah. I mean, one of them cognitively doesn't function, Herschel Walker. He'll just do whatever, whatever they want. Oz is just there to grift and steal and be a showman. That J.D. Vance, he's got a little dictator in him. Yeah. I mean, do you want the next, even if it's not Trump, do you want the next Republican riding into power with the Senate as well, especially those three senators and how they got there? There's a way this could be articulated much better than it is today. Oh, completely. You can parse it's not being through, articulated today. You could parse through statements and quotes <laughs> and put together a montage that would tell that story. 
easily. And Pennsylvania is one that's very scary because the governor there picks the secretary of state, appoints the secretary of state. There is no separately elected secretary of state. So if uh, I think his name is Magliano, who's a diehard mm-hmm. conspiracy theorist, Trump guy, <laughs> if he gets an office, if Pennsylvania were to go for the Democrat in 2024, like I think we could pretty much rely on the fact that he would not – um, his secretary of state, handpicked, would not certify that election. And, and we'd have a constitutional crisis. And what's slaughtering the Democrats from a messaging standpoint right now is, to the American voter, if you stack these three problems in front of them, existential threat to democracy, yeah. American democracy is basically in in trouble. And I forgot what my second one is, but you another one, another existential crisis, and... It's a hundred bucks to fill up your your truck every, twice a week. That's a dilemma. Yeah. Pick, pick which if if the problems if the issues you're wanting me to sift through are existential threat to, to democracy, a decrease in women's rights and constitutional rights and heavy constitutional issues in row, or every time I go to that goddamn gas pump, it's a hundred dollars. Pocketbook issues it, always take priority. The other two are irrelevant. It's the economy, and, stupid. Yeah. And, Every time Biden opens his mouth on inflation, it just gets worse. Right. And this is, again, we we seem to have nobody in government on the Democratic side, the Republicans, I don't even look for for this anymore, just to look straight into the camera and say, let me explain what's happening. There's a very simple reason why – well, there's multiple reasons, but the biggest reason why gas is what it is is that we're down about a million barrels a week in refinery production. Yeah, I believe that I read today there are only five functioning refineries left in the United States. Refinery capacity for the last 20 years has been really driven into the ground by the government. It's more costly to open these. There's more re- uh, more regulation around them. There were some instances where Hurricane Ida, I think in Louisiana, wiped one out. They didn't rebuild it. One exploded three years ago in Ohio. Again, it wasn't cost effective to rebuild them. So the choke point is not the amount of oil; it's the amount of refining capacity. Well, and, and in 2020 during the pandemic, when you know demand just you know fell exponentially, they closed some, didn't reopen. Refineries them. were taken offline yeah. with, and they decided not to reopen them or plan to reopen them either at that point. So, and, and some of those were likely going to come offline at some point, but it happened sure. much earlier than yeah. it would have because of the lack of demand. And nobody, Biden just sits there and just takes it because he. The, he is personally, I think, incapable of getting through a complex explanation in a way that people would feel like he understood the issue and yeah. felt better after he got through it. And there's nobody else that has to sometimes come from the president. And I think that's part of what Biden's overall messaging struggles are. He's just not capable of delivering kind of a complicated, intricate, nuanced message to a broad base of people. He just doesn't have the, the verbal skills anymore to do that. Right. Because I'd really like to know, what are we doing about this refinery capacity problem? I mean, yes, everybody wants to drive a Tesla and be green. But that's and, not going to happen tomorrow. That's it's not, not going to happen. Near term at all, yeah. So uh, Ben Shapiro was bitching the other day. He ordered a Tesla 18 months ago and doesn't have it. The average wait for a Tesla, I think, is 13 months right now. They have all kinds of supply chain problems out of China where most of their batteries are made. Yeah. So even if everybody if, – if the government gave everybody a check to go buy an electric car tomorrow, it would effectively change nothing because they're not available. So the whole everybody buy a green car, every time Biden or somebody in his administration even points in that direction, it just makes my, me shake my head. 
Yeah, I mean, he needs to focus on the near term. I do think long term, we do need more <clears throat> manufacturing capacity in this uh, country, especially for um, EV mm-hmm. batteries, batteries of all kinds, though. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that um, there's only a handful of uh, battery producers. I think Taiwan is one of the largest yeah. producers. Yeah. All those uh, rare earth minerals that yeah. make those batteries are not located in the U.S., I don't think. Th- they're not. Although it's interesting, Kansas actually just scored a Panasonic manufacturing plant for EV batteries. For so um, brings it'll bring, I think, 4,000 jobs. But, but yeah, so there needs to be an emphasis on that. But also short term, like what are we doing to increase refinery capacity? Inflation. We had the numbers that just came out that inflation um, is up 9% just over yeah. a month over month. I mean, that's just I I, I, mean, I had a crazy. conversation this week with a guy who's you know not married, no kids, good job, drives a Tesla. And it's like, I can't kind of explain how your life doesn't reflect like 95% of the American voting yeah. electric. Because if you have a family of four and your average income is 50, 60, $75,000 and you're paying what you're paying at the pump and at the grocery store, you feel that. That is oh, a day to day impact. And it doesn't matter what the J6 committee is doing or what Trump is doing that's going to alleviate that type of pain from inflation. And the Democrats have not been able to articulate any type of plan to how we're going to stop this. Is it we're just going to jack the interest rates up so high eventually the flow of money stops and we tip to a recession and that's how we get out of it? If that's what we're going to do, let's just get to it. Yeah, but we're not going to do anything that drastic before the midterms. So if things get worse before they get better, that's what we're going to have to live through. And then we'll have to see where we are politically at the midterms and what we've got the political will to do. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, sentiment that the Fed was slow to raise interest rates from the beginning. That, yeah. that should have been something that was done a, a while ago. They're trying not to tip us into recession. Which I, which I understand. Which although, I get. But, but interest rates have been artificially low now for they decades. Have. I mean, if you look at compared to like the 1970s and 1980s, I mean, since, you know, the... I would say the late 90s, we've been in this environment where we've had um, historically low interest rates. And so there's always been some question that that would not be the case forever. I mean, that was going to have to change. And there's a point behind Biden's grumpy talk and grumpy tweets about the oil companies are price price gouging you. There there is a point there that could be made. This is the Bernie Sanders point. We already have socialism all throughout the, 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 the economy. We just don't have any of the benefits of it. My evidence of this is the oil and gas industry still gets $16 billion a year of subsidies from the federal government to offset the cost of exploration for new oil. Exxon's Q1 2022, I think, I read this, uh, profits were $5.2 billion up from $2.7 billion a year ago. So all of the big oil companies have had record profits yes. year over year, and even if you don't use 2020 as uh, well, we're not using we're using 2021. That's right, but yeah. So uh, and you had I think it was the chief financial officer of BP who made some kind of comment that you know we have more money right now than we know what to do with. I yeah. mean, you know, it just so there is an aspect of that that is definitely true in terms of the record profits. Um, 
that are rolling in with several of these companies. But just old man screaming, get off my lawn at the oil companies isn't isn't gonna cut it. No. I would love to see Biden, you know, walking to the helicopter one day or impromptu press conference and they say, Hey president, why'd you fire that grouchy tweet off at Exxon? And him turn around and say, It's because we give them four billion dollars a year to offset their costs to keep gas cheap. And for that four billion, I have some expectations around cost controls at a time that we're in trouble. And I'm gonna give a press conference tomorrow and walk the American people through my position. If we could just, we just, we're just not capable no. of any of that. And I guess it's about pivoting expectations. I guess everybody's just going to have to bring their expectations down, 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 down until we just find a point that I guess we can communicate with each other. I, I guess so. I did, I find it, uh, I found a comical the other day, which I never expect Fox News to <laughs> be logical or to, um, but, and they weren't in this case at all. But and I get that they're the you know anti Biden hit Biden as much as possible. That's their mantra. So they've been on the gas prices yeah. issue for a long time and trying to beat him over the head with it politically. So in the last couple of weeks, gas prices have been falling a little bit, a little incrementally, bit. not a lot. Yeah. Well, Fox News had a story up about that saying that gas prices are falling too fast now. It's going to hurt mom and pop gas oh, stations. Jesus <laughs> I'm like, well, you can't have it both ways. Uh, like, how can you go from one day saying gas prices so are too high to they're falling too fast now? I just, so do we, do we agree that Roe is going to have a marginal impact on the midterms? Yes. I, I do think it has the potential to be a sleeper issue. Um, especially depending on what happens between now and then on a state-by-state level, because that's the untold story. You have trigger bans that have gone to effect in many states, including Mm -hmm. Missouri. Um, And then you have other states that are trying to pass trigger bans. And so between now and November, I think to their detriment, Republicans will keep this um, as an issue. It will never rise the level of gas prices, but it will be an issue um, on voters' minds because you will have state legislatures that in different states trying to pass laws, like yeah. Florida, like other ones. And so that doesn't help them politically, uh, and they're doing it before the midterms. And so I think in those states it could have an even greater effect than a marginal um, impact on turnout. So Rose, that's where we need to watch to see what happens. There. Rose going to have some impact we need to watch for. We know inflation is going to have a big impact. Yeah. I think the other two things that could impact the election, one is Biden's personal approval numbers and his personal job. Which have been in the tank, you know, for uh, so Brandon, long I'm ready to call the Joe Biden presidency a bust. Uh, I, this is not what, this is not what I thought we, we were getting. Uh, I think at one point I was ready for the historical reenactment of, of Eisenhower. I figured he'd pop out once a week, he'd wave to the crowd, we'd see him doing some social stuff. It was like, let's get back on our feet. I thought the moment, the big moment had passed, COVID was behind us, Biden would take the reins, we'd get a few bills passed, but we would generally get a a slowdown, a de-escalation of some of the things that happened during uh, during the pandemic, mostly around how people feel about government and how government's in their lives, government overreach through the pandemic. I thought Biden would take a, an approach to calm all of that and kind of, kind of just push all of that down a little bit. That has not been the tack that he's taken. And I don't think there's any other way that you could say the Biden presidency so far has been a complete failure. Yeah, I mean, I would go that far that it's been a complete failure. I think that in terms of having a transition from the Trump presidency and trying to restore some level of normalcy, that's happened. But I think that there's still 
been an incompetence factor there that I yeah. was not expecting. Um, and that's communication the failure there, which is and because I do grant Biden a lot of leeway with the fact that he has a 50-50 Senate. He has this Republican intransigence, you know, this block of Republicans that don't want to work with them come hell or high but, water. But, so there's all of these built-in yeah. barriers to being able to lead on policy. Um, and the Supreme Court as well, you know, which is taking a very confrontational approach when it comes to the federal government, particularly with agency uh, and regulatory authority. That was another decision with the Supreme Court on the EPA. Yeah. Um, and we're going to likely see more of that. So, again, that kind of ties Biden and, and you know, prevents him from being able to do as much as he would otherwise but do. The, the Democrats pitch moving forward has to be governmental competency. My whole life, the Republicans have told me they've hated government, they hated government, they want to get rid of government. They, they consistently run for the thing that they say they hate. And then to drive the point home of how unseriously they take governing and how much they hate government, they nominated Donald Trump. Yeah. The only thing that the Dems have going for them is the ability to say, we can competently government. If you could show the least amount of competency at any level of government, the popularity of your party would take off right. immensely. The Republicans, you guys are years away from even, even sniffing that type of organized party again. I thought the Democrats under Biden had a slim, slim chance to do it simply because the American people just wanted to get back to normal so, so quickly. But Omicron kind of killed that from the beginning. Afghanistan drove a nail through it. Well, Afghanistan was the catalyst for his approval ratings dropping because prior to Afghanistan, he had very robust approval ratings and he was writing, you know, for he, a— He was okay. He was—I mean, for—I would say, uh, yeah, I, all things considered, post-Trump era, with as intensely polarized as we are, I think that's about as good as you get the approval ratings he had. Yeah, I mean— Coming off of the summer of 2020, when the racial nerve is as raw as it's been in the United States in decades, to give that speech that he gave in Georgia, where he invoked Bill, Bull Connor and uh, Jim Crow 2.0, was probably the most partisan, irresponsible speech I've ever seen a president give. Yeah, I, well, I agree. Although I don't know that that really impacted that many people other than the Republican base who was very animated by it. I, I mean, think I don't a know. lot of people looked at that and Do said— Do you think a lot of people watched mm. that and saw that speech? I don't know. When I looked at that speech, I was like, that he just pointed that at half the neighbors I've ever lived at. Uh, who is this for? What is this for? You mean to tell me that you think— the things that finally made that bill, like you have to have an ID and some, some other restrictions on, on, on mail voting, what actually made it was very light. You took away some drop boxes that were just supposed to be there for COVID anyway. To call that Jim Crow 2.0-er, to invoke that type of violent history around that, I thought was incredibly irresponsible. That was the day I checked out on Biden. I could get through the Afghanistan stuff because Trump put him in a bad spot. Yes, it was a shit execution, but that's a lot of moving things in place. I could see where that would, would, would fall down and some things out of your control. That speech was a conscious decision. Or if it wasn't a conscious decision, that's even worse. If he's allowing people to write that kind of shit for him and he just says it, that's almost as bad as if he'd wrote it himself. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with you to a point because I think as the president, you have a responsibility – to shy away from that type of incendiary language. Like, yeah. you're supposed to rise above that and be the great uniter-in-chief and not the How great divider. How about just deliver speech that's historically accurate? 
How about yeah. just delivering a speech that sounds like you have any idea about what the racial history of this country has been and what it's been in Georgia? That speech was devastating from, from my perspective. I think a lot of people just checked out and said, we just can't do business with this guy at this point. Well, and that's been the issue is his approval ratings have been stubbornly mired you know, now in the low 40s, yeah. um, and he hasn't been able to recover and so I, I don't know that there's anything that would cause him to be able to recover before the election. I don't think so. To a significant degree. I do think there's some decoupling from Democratic candidates from Biden. That's I happening think, now, yeah. I think most people understand Biden has certain limitations, but that's not party-wide. That's not a systemic problem in the party. It's a problem specifically with Biden. What's interesting and as unpopular as Biden is, as bad as he is, um, and head-to-head matchups against Trump, he still comes out on top yep. in the most recent polling because Trump is such an unacceptable uh, candidate, yep. right? So, <laughs> you know, Biden, I think, clearly has passed his prime. There needs to be a new candidate on the Democratic side. It's just insane to me that Republicans would toy with renominated Trump, who has lost them. Now, you know, a handful of federal elections, yeah. lost control of the Senate, Probably gonna the lose presidency. That gave the Senate again. Of and him. we're a nation of 300 million people, and it always comes back to, like, this is the best we can do. But I tell every Democratic friend I have, the, if you want a Democratic president in 2024, the best thing for us is if Donald Trump runs. Yeah. It's the best thing. Look at it this way. 81 million people voted against Donald Trump. Yes. Very few people voted for Joe Biden. Right. They voted to get rid of him. That is more, more people have told Trump, we don't want you to be president than has ever been told in the history of the United States. Yeah. And I can't point to anything since he's left, since he lost the election that has improved his popularity or his standing. No. If we want a Democratic president, I'm not saying Biden. If you want a Democrat to be president in 2024, the only option is if Trump runs. Because DeSantis will wipe the field with whoever we put out there. I mean, DeSantis is not an idiot. He'll know how to moderate himself a little bit. He'll, he'll put on a decent campaign. I don't know who we have. If Biden doesn't run, I don't know what we're going to do. And certainly after 2024, it's anybody's guess who, I mean, who would run. I, I think it's an uphill climb to defeat DeSantis, but I think a non-Biden candidate could do that, Ooh. depending on the candidate. I mean, and, and again, we've backed ourselves <laughs> into the intersectional woke pyramid. Yeah. Who's going to jump the black woman to run? Right, that's the not issue, a white yeah. guy, right? I mean, Pete's gay, but that doesn't trump her on the intersectional scale. I mean, we 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 put ourselves in this box. We're just going to have to live with it. Yeah, no, I. I know. Could I you know. see the uproar if Mayor, if, if Biden doesn't run in some, in Mayor Pete primaried Kamala? Harris, it would be, it would be a, a, just a massive shit show meltdown. There's no way. Yeah, I, I don't, but it's interesting too because there's so many Democrats that think the same way, like that there needs to be a completely new candidate. So I, I, I just there's so much like angst yeah. and frustration I, right now in the party. Point I don't to know. somebody under fifty that's what a statewide office. We'll start there. Yeah. That's not Pete. He couldn't win the, the governor of, of Indiana. Yeah. I, uh, it's Indiana, though. So <laughs> I mean, where, where's that person that has any type of appeal at all in any type of political savage, savvy, savviness, knowledge, well, I, experience to get I think the you process? go back, you, you look at who you have as governors and governor of a politically 
powerful or important state, and that's where you would start. Well, California is going back to a mask mandate. Yeah. That just, Gavin, whatever Gavin, Gavin Newsom was doing, thinking he was running, that, that just ended his... Whatever. Are they going back to a mask mandate? Like, say, why? Uh, got a t- I got a text, I think ah. the 29th or so, or till the 29th, they're going back to an indoor mask mandate. Oh, okay. If any not of that is it. true for any length of time, he's he's done. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I will not vote for a Democrat who 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 is that, who does that. that that's just not going to work. And if they start dicking with schools again and messing with school schedules, out. They will just get absolutely hammered even more in the... Uh, in the midterms and let one state like California do it. The Republicans will use that to leverage it across the entire country Everybody, and paint yeah. Dems in one big swath. We're just every hole we see, we just, we just throw ourselves right into it. Yeah. The yeah. Only- I don't know. I, there are, um, so the, the governor of Colorado I've always thought is, would be interesting because he's more of a centrist. Yeah. Colorado's a purple state. It's been leaning blue, but, but still, um, you know, but, but somebody like that, I, I do feel like you need a, you have to have somebody who can, again, it always goes back to appealing to the Rust Belt states yeah. and the coalition that Biden was able to, to craft together. And I feel like there's very few leading Democrats that can do that right now. Who, give me a Democrat you think could carry Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and have a shot in Ohio. Oh, I don't know. I don't see any. I can't think of a single, I can't think of a single person. I mean, you, you have, there's a few, I should have discount, I guess, the Senate and House completely. I mean, there are a few people there like an Amy Klobuchar type who, you know, might have some. I think everybody to told Amy, she really got no traction last time she ran. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know where the Democrats are going. The only thing that gives me hope is that the Republicans are years away from being viable again it feels like yeah and i i do want to caution you know we talk about like you know desantis is the hot thing now but you know in real time and political time 2024 is a long time away and anything can change and so again i'm not and i'm not saying that he doesn't have the ambition he clearly does and to run but but things can change too but desantis uh there's a real interesting i don't did you read the new yorker profile on him no but i talked to his I'm like sure father flattering um so it, it, i mean it wasn't but it was also just pretty revealing because they interviewed his parents and like all these people around him like he is a very mercurial person like he does not get along well with like any yeah. people um he's awkward around people like personally in a one-to-one situation like he doesn't do that kind of like wine and dine donors like chummy you know type of what you need to do politicking like he's not good at that um and a lot of people just find him very weird even people that have served in his yeah. administration in florida so it's interesting I, again it's one thing to be governor of a very large state like florida but when you take when you do retail politics nationally, um, it'll be interesting to see if he can change that perception or how he comes across, you know, with this, people. This is the evidence I'm going on right now. So right now, the the, the person who most impacts the, the presidential election in 2024 is the current president. Yeah, I am strongly going off of he cannot run again. I don't see he how he physically would. can't do it. I mean, look at I mean, at his. There's no more COVID campaign schedule. No, that ain't gonna happen. It, uh, yeah, it's it's not. Did you see that interview with Jimmy Fallon? They yes. they literally had to shut up, shut the camera off. And some guy from like the New York Times is like, "This is the first time a sitting president in the first two years of his presidency has not set for an interview with the New York Times, the New York Post, or any major newspaper." He can't. 
He it, just simply can't do it. I know. I felt this whole time. I don't even know if he even lasts till 2024, let alone runs in 2024. I just, there's no way. And the other person is the vice president. Kamala Harris dropped out of the presidential primary before she finished fourth in her home state. Yeah. And I would say she's done nothing as VP to increase the, her, her profile in any way amongst independents or anybody that she would have to carry to beat Trump or, DeSant- or to beat DeSantis in a thing. With, if no. those two are the two main candidates right now, I think DeSantis could easily wipe those two out. You know who Biden originally wanted to choose as his VP, um, mm. and again he was, uh, you know, pressured into choosing Kamala Harris for intersectionality re- of reasons. He wanted to choose Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer of yeah. uh, Michigan, who you know it's interesting. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but um, I, I mean, she could not have done worse than Kamala Harris has performed at uh, all. I, I to mean, me, th- this is easy. The pick was Val Demings, because then yeah. what you do is you, you you kill all this defund the police bullshit right from the get-go. You triangulate the Republicans on the on their main source of, of beating you over the head. She was the Orlando police That's chief. That's right. She was in the military. Congress. She's a police yeah. chief. We're putting her in charge of, of, our, of our reform police uh, uh, commission. She's going to work with Tim Scott. It's going to be great. There was a fucking win there to be had and instead he picked kamala harris for what reason well we don't need her for california val demings would have given him a shot of would have helped it couldn't hurt yeah it just at every uh, it just seems like at every step the biden administration has just has not shown that they are up for up for the moment i think the third thing that can impact the uh, the midterms is the january 6th committee and we've kind of had an opportunity now to see six or seven. And I these. have to say, I think these have been the best run hearings I have seen probably in my lifetime. Best I mean, showing of working government in years. They've been executed so well. Um, and that's a testament to the committee members, the committee chairs. Yep. I think Liz Cheney has been phenomenal she's in how been she's excellent. laid off this yep. case, laid out this case. Uh, so yeah, it's, and it's been gripping testimony. I mean, there's been instances where I've missed it and I've been so eager to then, you know, be able to yeah. go watch it later. I mean, it's because they've been able to tell the story, bring these witnesses forward and do it in a way that's just very compelling because these are people that were either served in the Trump administration or the Republican office holders who are giving you their firsthand yeah. accounts of what they experienced. And that makes it powerful. Yeah. This isn't a group of Democratic operatives no. giving this testimony. It's all Republicans and all Trump Trump supporters. We, we talked about this before, Mike's, that there's a there's a huge need on the Democratic side to deliver the kill shot to Trump, right? Uh, to 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 have him arrested, to have him publicly indicted. Something that allows you to get on the group chat to all of your Republican friends and say, "You see, I told you, I was right all along." Boom goes the dynamite. I win. And that's what every, everybody wants that satisfaction. I don't think that's what the January 6th committee is, is going to do. Yeah. They're, they're delivering a lot of, a lot of points of clarification. They're delivering a lot of details around things that really color what was happening. And it's all bad. But again, I have yet to see that the text, the call, the testimony, I heard Donald Trump directly talk to this person and say to do this violent thing. That's what you have to have for insurrection. We're probably not going to get there because that's a very, very hard thing to get there. And even if he said it to somebody, they probably wouldn't testify to it. So 
we, I think the January 6th committee is doing a lot of good, but it's mostly a centered around making Trump just not, not electable again. Yeah, I think first and foremost, that's the, the primary goal. Make him unelectable, chip away the establishment support, any of those high-powered donors who could really power his candidacy um, in 2024. But if there is anything, and again, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, testimony, a lot of discussion that we're not privy to with the televised hearings, um, anything that is there is being handed directly to the Justice Department. I mean, yeah. DOJ, I mean, is being, you know, spoon-fed everything they could possibly need if there is anything there yeah. to make a case. Um, and so it's it's really the, the best way possible. So we'll, we'll see what happens and comes out of that. It's probably much more likely that there's more people in Trump's inner circle that get um, indicted and yeah. end up getting charged and um, and face consequences. That isn't to say there is a no opportunity for Trump himself to come under scrutiny. There is, um, but it'll be interesting. But I do think it would be something more, I don't want to say minor, but something that's um, with less gravitas than what people are expecting. It'll be something like witness tampering or witness intimidation. Um, Although at this point, if there is something to charge Trump with that will stick, I don't care what it is or what level of severity, because if it, again, makes him persona non grata in the eyes of the American people, that's enough. Is it taking Trump to trial? Let's just say that referral to DOJ, you know, they get on the case. He's charged with obstruction of of Congress, witness tampering, and lying to Congress and two or three other, like you said, kind of not we're not getting insurrection, treason, but criminal behavior that certainly is criminal, but doesn't rise to to the, th- the level of existential threat to the United States. Do you prosecute him? I say yes. Yeah. I mean, because, again, I think we've gone through this um, several periods now in American history where we there's been this reluctance to prosecute presidents and former presidents. Right. Um, Even when there's been clear and compelling evidence. I mean, the case of Nixon, you know, he was pardoned by Ford. So that wasn't able to happen. But I I do think, yes, if there were crimes or wrongs committed, you do prosecute. You should because, I mean, the president should be equal to any other American under the law. And I feel like we've got, somehow gotten away from that. And Trump clearly thinks that the president has some type of uh, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Immunity. Immunity, yes. Yeah. Um, he, he throws as, out executive privilege all the time. All the time for all everything. Time. And, but, but he really does think that he's somehow immune. I think that's a big part of why he's running for president again so he can you know, be, have a uh, shielded from prosecution, particularly on the financial side. But no, I think, yeah, if there is anything, I would say go and, and, and prosecute. Um, I, you know, and I really, you're never going to convince like the diehards anyway, the core MAGA supporters. I mean, they, they're going to ride with them, die with them. But again, I, I think it would be significant enough and it would maybe jolt those people that are on the margins who may have voted for him the first time, maybe the second time, uh, but, but very uneasy about it to say, hey, like this is over, like, you know, reset. If the House... If the Republicans take the House, is Joe Biden impeached? Uh, well, I mean, in the House side, I mean, there's a good chance of that, yeah. So is it also fair to say that you could almost find any president, every president in the modern era has created a crime to some degree? You could find something internationally, something that they did that they could be gone after for after they're out of office. 
uh, Obama, Fast and Furious. Um, yeah, but, but all again, kinds I think you have to. I think you have to be cautious because I mean, impeachment is a political process, and so when the presidents are impeached, it, ne- it doesn't always necessarily align necessarily align with yeah. uh, criminal prosecution um that you know that there are you know specific statutes or you know felonies or misdemeanors that you can point to you can be impeached for something that uh is um a uh, uh sure not not a crime just, right. just behavior I, I guess my point is that do you think there's any way that 50 percent of the country will not see a charge to donald trump as being political a political hit job Well, I mean, I think the hope is that I mean, with everything that you're seeing with play out with the January six hearings, that that is going to move the needle on perceptions of Trump and his He's behavior. still drawing fifteen to eighteen thousand people to these god awful rallies. He does. He is, but you you have, I think, most recent polling had it at exactly fifty percent of the country that thinks he should be yeah. charged with something, which is actually up. So when you're already at fifty percent, and I mean we're not even through the hearings, I mean that that's substantial. So yeah, I mean you're he's always going to have. You have to remember too that the people that go to his rallies, I mean some of these people travel uh, cross state True. to attend because I mean you know this is their. Life. You don't think those people would go batshit crazy the the day they they took? Well, him they into might, custody. but that's not a reason not to charge him if you have clear and compelling evidence. So again, the evidence has to be there. You okay. have to be able to make the case, and I think it has to be something that is pretty close to an airtight case. It can't just be circumstantial. It, it, you know, it can't be something to where there's a fifty-fifty so, probability. So Trump gets arrested in 2023, charged with. Three felonies that are in that vein of lying to the FBI, obstruction of Congress, stuff like that, is taken to court. And there's a negotiated something. There's some sort of settlement that that happens. But we actually go through with this. Biden doesn't run for election. Let's say Harris gets in there. Kamala, she wins one term, and she's defeated. What are the odds she gets tried for something now? I'd put them at over fifty percent. Well, I mean, that's a lot of speculation, but though. I this never... is this is the, you can but, see the game. We're already playing it. But no, you, you have already... to be able to to prove that. I think the, what happened with the Capitol insurrection. My was proof is in your in... first answer. If the Republicans take the House, they will impeach Joe Biden just because Trump got it, just out of spite, just to prove they can. It's not a far leap to take that to its next logical conclusion. But you have to have impeachment in the Constitution is based on uh, clear crimes and misdemeanors. I'm getting that a little bit sure, wrong. but so that's not going to stop High crimes and misdemeanors. So, you know, they can't impeach him because they don't like a policy or don't sure like him on can. inflation. That's not— <sighs> You really don't think that that crew in the House— is not going to impeach Joe Biden when they take the House in November. Okay, but you don't think that would they would try to do that anyway, regardless of whether Trump is prosecuted? I mean, I think that, no, my that's point already going to happen. They're doing that as payback for Trump being impeached, right? Okay, I see what you're okay. saying. Yeah. So why wouldn't you just follow that. that same logic? Well, you arrested my guy after he's out of office. Now I'm going to arrest yours. But that can't be a reason not to charge. Based, I mean, that's ridiculous if we're going to take into account that you know they're going to you know like tag me back and uh, try to give me back. All I was I mean, saying is that, not... that there's a couple things during the J6 thing, uh, during the J6 hearings that people have said we really need to pause and think about what we're doing. One is you cannot have Secret Service people testify against the president. That 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 cannot happen. Not in public. 
Because again, the president has to be able to operate with a sense of comfort with these people. If we're going to start throwing that in the mix, well, we should just throw Clinton in prison right now because I'm sure he's done a whole ton of shit that the statute of limitations haven't run out on. We, we can't take the people that are around the president day to day at moments when he may not be very presidential and use that against him or her at some point in time later. That, that's a bad, bad, bad idea. And if we're going to arrest Donald Trump for something, we better goddamn well think it through because that is going to be – there's going to be some repercussions for that. You talk about things changing. That's a change I don't know if we can come back from. I, I'm all of the mindset if there is evidence there and you can prosecute him, prosecute him. If crimes are committed, especially if they're ancillary to what happened on January 6th, because that event enough, if it's yeah. related to that, then it deserves to, to be pursued. That's the other half of my, my struggle session. If you don't charge him, what's the presidency worth? It's already been degraded so much. And it by reinforces Trump, that the president Biden. is above the law, Correct. I think. And that they will always have special treatment. Yep. Because, you know, again, this is a case of where um, if he's not going to be prosecuted, then if he was prosecuted, would he get pardoned? So you always come back to this idea. And we, again, we have not had a president actually charged and convicted, right? Yep. That, But again, it's because we have had this mentality that somehow for the good of the country, we don't want to do that and take that step. But the converse of that is what message are we sending by not holding presidents yeah. accountable? And I think it's fair to say we have never had a president whose criminality has risen to this level Yeah, that we've known about. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that have looked at this and said, there's a lot more here at Watergate, a lot more serious what happened on, on the 6th. Oh, I agree. In, That's what I, I think. Of course, I mean, I, I thought that... <laughs> The charges in the first impeachment were very serious, and, you know, that was before everything that transpired here. So, but yeah, I think especially with what went on here, I mean, with the just uh, sustained pressure campaign that was exerted, um, I mean, you add into the fact, you know, the calls that were made to Raffensperger in Georgia, like all of this, there's a lot that was done in terms of leveraging the power of the presidency to come down hard on people to the point of basically threatening them um, to to get have your way. But this is if you arrest Donald Trump or charge him with a crime, you've only created a situation that only alienates half the country no matter what happens. No matter what happens, 50% of the country is going to be on fire about it. I don't know if half of the country still stands with Trump, though. I don't know this if it's is, that. I don't think this is just Trump's base. There is a ton of intellectual conservatives, Jonah Goldberg, David French, saying we should not go nowhere near this because it's going to crack open. It's going to crack that seal. And now this is going to be used as a political tool. In a day and age where everything becomes a political tool, arresting the ex-president is the ultimate political tool. And half the country is going to see this. Trump's 33% hard base plus another group of conservatives are going to say, wait a minute, this, this is not something that we, we should not be pursuing this criminally. If you want to take those charges and somehow use them over Trump to get him out of the political process or bully him into not running, I really don't have a problem with that. But if we're going to actually start charging crimes, that that's a whole different that's a whole different animal. Well, and I, I but again, I just always go back to if the uh, evidence is there and you don't, so are there's just never going to be a scenario where we're ever going to charge an ex-president with anything. I don't I don't know because of fear that it would be 
used well, as a political that's weapon. why that's why you got to choose your presidents very very wisely <laughs> and that's that, but again i think that's ridiculous because look at other countries other countries have prosecuted ex-presidents and ex-leaders i mean that's happened in italy it's happened in many well, democracies they've held their leaders to account much better than we have in many cases so you remember as like a kid where I'm trying to think of like a good analogy where you like get away for something. You and your brothers or sisters, you get away with something for a really, really long time. You know, your mom and dad, they're just letting it slide because, you know, they just don't want to deal with it or they're tired or something. Then you like do it that one time thinking it's normal behavior. And it's like, that's it. You get in massive trouble. <laughs> We've gone for so long without holding anybody accountable for anything they do. We're going to start now. And this is the place we're going to start. I'm not saying it's not, that may not be the right thing to do, but accountability died mid Trump presidency. That, that's not, nobody gives a shit about that. But again, Nobody's to your point, I think Trump, you give him an inch, he takes a yard. He's, He's taking going a to keep mile pushing, already. Pushing. He's already taken it. And so the risk, if you have clear and compelling evidence and you do not prosecute and you know a crime took place, and then, you know, Trump gets nominated, he, he gets elected, uh, and then he uh, basically is president again. And who knows what he will be willing to do at that point, because he knows that up until now, he's been able to get away with all this. Yeah, no, that's my point. Nobody has stopped him. Not one single person has stood in his way and said, enough is enough. And that's not just like his presidency. That's his entire career. So we're going to do it now. At the point where it could cause massive unrest, protest, and potential damage to the political system. Craig, he tried to stage a coup. He tried to retain power unlawfully. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) If this were up to me, that fucker would be in in cuffs right now. I am not arguing this from what what a perspective is. This is part of where my Democratic friends, we've just lost touch on reality on multiple fronts. And the reality is, it is very risky to arrest an ex-president. And my only point is, we need to think about what we're doing if that's the direction we go. If this were, if none of those potential political outcomes were in play, 100%. But. Well, and I agree we need to be thoughtful about it, but I don't think that we, um, our primary concern should be what a mob may do or how they may react or, you know, whether that would be on the streets or, you know, politically, what, you know, that type of retribution. I, I feel like if that's the overriding concern that prevents justice from being carried out that's that's a miscarriage of justice at that point i guess i am so cynical right now in the term i have no expectation that justice is going to be served especially on that man that i've seen him just do unspeakable things and there's never any accountability and i've seen it trickle down now to all layers of the government justice uh, accountability those aren't expectations anymore for me for me is what causes us just not to do more damage to ourselves right now? I think that's the mode we're in. Lofty goals right now, eh, that feels beyond our reach. How do we just not start another riot? That's where I'm at right now. And that's a bad place to be. I, I totally get that. But I just, I just, I look out at the world, and I just don't see any other way to process what, what's happening. There's no way Trump's going to be held accountable for everything he's, he's done. At most, he may get a charge on some tampering with the witness they think is Hope Hicks. H- how could Trump harass Hope Hicks? He can't, he's going to get out of that. If it's Hope Hicks, 
the the person who was who was the Trump whisper whisper okay. the person who ironed his tie. Hope Hicks is the really nice looking his old press secretary. Yeah, that they're going to make the case that he called and her lawyer didn't her law, like a staffer got the call and hung up and called her lawyer. He didn't even talk to her. Well, you know, I agree. That was passed on. And there may be other forms of witness intimidation. Sure. There, were, there were other allusions to that, you know, prior to, I think, Cassidy Hutchison's testimony. Yep. So even before that. But it always comes back to me is that if you want to protect democracy and prevent the country from crumbling even further, you have to extinguish Trump and the fire that he started, which is the MAGA movement. Uh, and and find some way to make that no longer politically viable. That's where you have to start, because as long as that's politically viable, I mean, there's already this march to autocracy and to being yeah. able to control all levels of government and in the election being charged process. Slow that or quicken that? Well, I mean, it takes him out of the picture, and I think that without him as a clear and convincing leader. You know, there is a semblance of that movement that is built totally on him as a personality cult. And I think it becomes very difficult for anybody, even a DeSantis, to be able to uh, completely pick up the pieces and retain that entire movement in the way Trump was able to do. Here, I think it starts to falter. Here, here's my worst case scenario. The, the, the charging of Donald Trump with obstruction of Congress galvanizes a, a splintered Republican Party. We may not like Donald Trump, but he's a rally point now. And it's a rally point that everybody can grab something a hold of. If you're a MAGA person, you can make it personal. It's a personal persecution of him. If you're a traditional conservative, uh, conservative, you can talk about, hey, the norm of not arresting former presidents and the fact that where is this going to stop? On top of that, so now you have all of this heat and all this boil in the in the atmosphere, then you throw the midterms on top of that, and then what happens if Q one of twenty twenty three Biden is in P? It, it's just to me the downside. Yes, the downside potential of this to what actually could happen may not rise to the level of what you're going to get, which is he's not going to jail. That's not going to happen. He's not going to wear an ankle bracelet. Right? They're not, we're going to put an ex-president in jail? We're going to do that? I mean, again, I don't I, know. It depends know. on what evidence yeah. comes forward. But I just, I, I don't understand the concept of, like, this idea that somehow we cannot prosecute ex-presidents. That but, somehow they should be just in this untouchable yeah. place. But in my defense, I didn't create this around Trump. The Republicans did. The Republicans have created this illusion that Trump can get away with anything because he has gotten away with anything. Well, so I, and moreover, again, that's just more reason why, like, if you do have, I just, I can't, anyway, I. It, it's got to be, <laughs> the January 6th has done an excellent job of laying out data points and connecting Trump back to events that, that certainly could lead to criminal prosecution. If it were me, my vote would be do it. Let, let, at this point, we have to restore some accountability to the presidency, but just get ready to strap in. Because well, I do think it has to be, to be done tough. carefully and methodically, and, and you have to have all your ducks in a row if you're going to do it's it. It's irrelevant you what you're going to do. He's going to explode. He is going to explode like the, a sun. Look at what he did on the 6th when he thought his presidency was in jeopardy. Yeah. What will he do if he thinks his freedom is in jeopardy? 
I'm not saying don't. My vote would be we, we have to, one, for accountability, and two, to restore some dignity to the American presidency. But we got to be very, very cautious about what we're doing. And I think we need to figure out after this long term how we hold powerful people accountable because we have a horrible yes. track record in this country of doing that, whether it be politicians or billionaires. I mean, we could even, you know, Elon Musk also falls there, too, because he's never <laughs> have been held accountable for any of the decisions he's made. He doesn't even respect the law. He flaunts yeah. it. Uh, you know, securities and exchange. I mean, you can go down the list. And there's a real open question whether or not he'll be held accountable for a binding contract he made with Twitter. I mean, he may be able to get out of that, that the average person would not be able to so I'm get talk, out of. I'm going to pivot to Elon here before we go. But Sorry, and I know that was a weird pivot, yeah, but no, it, that's it a seemed good to be pivot. on... But, but this is what I'll say about Trump. Is he more dangerous as an authoritarian or as a martyr? You make a martyr out of that dude, you may have a real problem on your hands. Yeah. I mean, Trump is... Th- this. The, the reason we're in this wad of shit today is because nobody dealt with it day one, day right. two. Now we're six years into it, and we're really over the barrel. Well, and again, and Republicans have multiple opportunities. They could have nipped this in the bud yeah. with impeachment. Um, they could have nipped it in the bud with the uh, 25th Amendment. Um, yeah, they could have done that. You know, which there were discussions about yeah. going on. I mean, that would have ensured that he could not have run again. And I hey, mean, there pubs, were so many opportunities. I, I don't give a shit about how the second impeachment, the, but the Democrats didn't add anybody to, to you know, Republicans to the panel, or you didn't talk about the right thing. You were all there that day. You know exactly what he did. That's yeah. on you guys. Let's talk about Elon for a few minutes before we go, because I'm under the impression that this whole thing by Twitter was just one giant troll, and I think the evidence is in that that was the correct way to look at it. Oh, what, yeah, I think that uh, I think that's clearly the case. I don't know. I don't think he was serious at all no. um, about this from the beginning. No. And, I mean, his excuse for trying to back out now is ridiculous bots. Like, you really didn't know Twitter had all of these bots? I mean, come do on. Do you think it had something to do with the with the increase in interest rates on that money he had to loan out to that $44 billion? Ah, no, that's a good point. Could, yeah. it, could it also bid that his business partners, he presented no viable financial model to recover that $44 billion? The best rumor that I've heard is this was all a, a, a snow job because he liquidated $8.5 billion of Tesla stock for this deal. Typically, when your CEO founder Zuckerberg did this four or five years ago, where he took like $2 billion and liquidated it, and the stop tanked, and he had to go in front of the board and, and explain what he was doing. Wall Street doesn't like it when the owner-founder owner founder cashes in a whole bunch of stock. Yeah. So it may have been that he'd started this whole thing with Twitter just to provide cover to cash this $8.5 billion of stock in, knowing that if he goes to court and he has to pay a billion-dollar breakup fee, he's still almost – it's almost a push when it comes to the taxes he would have had to pay on that, on that money. So I don't know if Elon Musk is that smart. I have a tendency to tack to he's just a troll having fun. I think a lot of it is sad, yeah. Did you see that gross story today about Elon Musk's dad at 77 is fathered his second child with his stepdaughter, who's 33? No. Really? Yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. No, I Elon Musk's dad has, like, kids all over the place. He's had kids with stepchildren. Well, and Elon he, Musk has 10 kids. He has 10 kids. And did you hear the story that came out about him a couple of weeks ago that when um, his now ex was having their baby and in the hospital having their baby, another girlfriend of Elon's, this executive who worked for him, she was giving birth secretly to another of his kids. I mean, simultaneously. And his ninth and 10th kids were twins that he had with a Tesla executive. Yeah. I, I don't. 
I also heard an interview with Elon Musk where he says the the factories in Germany and and oh, you saw that they are furnaces burning cash. He's like, we are just burning through cash. We have no supply chain from China. We're behind on everything. He's like, we're burning through billions of dollars. Well, I I thought you were going to mention he made that kind of more glowing comment about Chinese workers, about how they're more hardworking than American workers, and they're dedicated, and they stay extra hours. And somebody had to remind him, uh, yeah, they don't have the freedom. They work like 18 to 20 hour shifts. Where do you think Elon (laughs) gets all of his fancy batteries from? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, he's totally, you know, sucking up to Chinese government. If you think Elon Musk is this super entrepreneur, just point your Googler machine at him. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of weirdness with that guy. Very weird. He's a very strange guy. And it's interesting because you get to be uber wealthy like that. Like, I mean, we have very um, nice terminology for someone who's very weird and strange or crazy. Idiosyncrasies. Eccentric. Yeah, we call them eccentric instead of saying they're crazy. (laughs) You know, I, I, I always go through this. When's the last time someone looked Elon Musk straight in the eye and said, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and right. we're not doing your idea? No. See, we're going with what Brandon said. These people said. get surrounded no, by yes people correct. that just cater to their need. Layer upon layer upon layer. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Trump, I, think, uh, I think Musk is just having fun. Yeah. And I want him and Trump to go at it more. That could be fun. <laughs> I, yeah, which has started, apparently. I saw I, that, yeah. Trump did bring up a valid point. All of his companies reach subsidiaries from other governments. That, right. That's a part of their success. And I don't think Musk actually started Tesla either. So I don't think so. Yeah, no. there's there's a lot about the Elon Musk um, mythology that's probably going to get a, a second yeah. Look. You do want to end with anything? You did anything good this summer? I mean, we've already missed half the summer. But I know, yeah. You did, summer's halfway You went to over. Amsterdam? I did. So I went to the Netherlands and Belgium and was there for like eight days, took the train, went to several Damn. cities, Rotterdam, The Hague. So when I was in The Hague, uh, well, I'll first, yeah, Hague, I sat in on a session of the Dutch Parliament, which was pretty cool. So something I've done with the uh, House and the Senate here. And then I actually sat in on a session of the International Criminal Court in the okay. Hague. So Damn. I got to watch as this uh, Congolese dictator was on trial for genocide and crimes against humanity. So this, that was really Does his name start with a K? Con- yes. Uh, I, I think I remember this guy from a couple of years ago. He and was I, just insane on the internet. And, and it's, it's fascinating because he you can clearly pick him out because he's surrounded by plexiglass. He, the defense is on this <laughs> side. You have the prosecution on another side. You have a panel of three judges um, in the front watching this. Um, and, you know, as spectators, I mean, you have to go through background check, get approved. You go through two layers of security, and then in you're the, in this galley. Were you in the same building that the Nazis were tried in? Wasn't that the Hague? That was in the Hague, too, but I don't think it's the same building. This is a newer, very modern building. I mean, the International Criminal Court was only formed in, oh, gosh, what was it, like 1999, 2000? So it's fairly new. Uh, But, no, it was a very interesting experience. Really kind of geeked out over being there. Yeah. Probably next week we'll have to cap on. We'll have to tap into your uh, uh, knowledge of UK politics as Boris Johnson's. Oh yes, we even get to that. That was that's a whole podcast in of itself. Isn't it strange that the two leaders that were tagged to have the most hypocritical and unprofessional response to COVID are out? Yep. Everybody else pretty much got through it except those two. Those two, yeah. Well, and a lot of similarities between those two, although there's also a few key differences, too, which uh, the British system, I think, shows us. Every politician knows. In in time of crisis like that, there's a break glass response that always works. You stay to that script, you don't vary off. Those were the two that tried, I think, to do some unique things, and it just just doesn't work. Right. Doesn't work. All right. I think that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. 
Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.